Well, beginning in about seventh grade, um, I began to run track and cross country uh, in high school and uh, ran that entire time. And um, my senior year in high school, uh, we uh, had a good team. And um, on one particular day, uh, at the end of school every day, uh, about 3.30, uh, we would meet out on the field and uh, we would put in our, our practice. And on this particular day, we were going to do a seven-mile run. And so there were just about six or seven of us. Some of the others were doing a, di a different run, but about six or seven of us uh, set out on the run, and we actually ran off campus uh, down a highway onto a, a back country road uh, where we felt, felt like it would be fairly safe to run. And uh, in doing that, we basically just took up the right-hand lane. It was a two-lane road, and we were stretched out across six, seven guys wide, and we were laughing, and we were joking, and we were probably about a halfway through our seven-mile run and uh, one of the guys uh, yelled out, car! At which time, um, we began to file fairly quickly over to the right shoulder of the road. We were in the right-hand lane, so we filed to the right shoulder of the road. But one guy, his name was Brent, uh, had been on the left-hand side of the group of us. And so he was actually closest to the middle of the road. And when someone yelled, car, instead of going with the rest of us to the right shoulder of the road, he decided to go across the middle of the road and the left lane of the road onto the left shoulder of the road as we laughed and joked and made comments. And I remember looking over at him as he went across, and I don't know what the uh, psychological technical term is for when bad things happen, everything starts working in slow motion, but it's true. And in slow motion, I saw a car, uh, a 72 Catalina, as a tank, come in the left-hand lane and hit him, uh, going about 45 miles an hour. And I remember seeing it hit him, and I remember seeing it literally catapult him 12, 15 feet up in the air, far enough to where you had to do this to see, over the back of the car and uh, onto the, the pavement. And um, he broke uh, more bones than I thought the human body had. Uh, he broke his leg in more places than I thought was possible, uh, a number of injuries, and he was just a bloody mess as he lay there on the pavement and the other six of us uh, as 18 year olds didn't have a clue uh, and um, thus began uh, sort of our senior year in high school on the cross country team and I think back about that day and Brent assumed when someone yelled car that he knew where the car was and he didn't he assumed that he was being given warning and plenty of time to get out of the way. But he wasn't. He assumed that he was in control of the situation as opposed to the 5,000 pound 1972 uh, Catalina being in control of the situation. He assumed that because we were laughing and we were joking and we were uh, just having a good time and we were in the middle of a, of a good run, he assumed that nothing bad could happen in that type of setting, in that type of of situation. He assumed that a single unwise choice, why in the world would you go across two lanes of traffic rather than coming over to your side of the road? He assumed that one single unwise choice uh, could not have such immediate consequence. He assumed that drifting to the left shoulder of the road really wasn't that big a deal because we were on a country road and it was quiet and the sun was shining and it was six in the evening and Jim Collins writes in his new book, How the Mighty Fall. He said, whenever people begin to confuse the nobility of their cause 
with the goodness and wisdom of their actions, they're more easily able to lead themselves astray. And then he makes this statement. Bad decisions made with good intentions are still bad decisions. Bad decisions made with good intentions are still bad decisions. Brent made a really bad decision that day back in 1982. This morning, we're going to wrap up the series that we've been in for the last month, simply called Today, with a final story in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, um, that begins with that little two-word phrase, one day. So far, we've looked at three of these stories. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, we looked at when we started the series, Jesus said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And we talked about how whenever Jesus got around water and the disciples got around water, they should have recognized this is test time. This is going to be hard test time here. But they never seemed to get that. And we learned that day how uh, in the course of a single day, our faith can grow a little bit. And then we looked at some of the scariest words, I think, in the Old Testament in the book of Job. Job chapter 1. It says, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, the accuser, also came with them. And we talked about how in the course of a single day, every single thing can fall apart in your life. In the course of one day, everything can fall apart. And then last week we talked about a story in the book of Samuel. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost. Perhaps the Lord will work in our behalf. And we looked at how in the course of a single day, we can choose to live as a risk taker when God invites us to a a God-initiated risk. Well, this morning we're going to talk about today I did the right thing. You know, sometimes it's hard to know what the right thing to do actually is. But if we're really honest with ourselves, just sort of in the, in the recess of our own heart or own mind, if we're really honest with ourselves, most times, in most circumstances, in most situations, we know what the right thing to do is. Most of us don't struggle with right and wrong near as much as we struggle with wise and unwise. Most of us don't struggle with, with the black and white near as much as we struggle with the gray. In most situations, we know what the right thing to do is. Our struggle, our dilemma, our catch-22 comes in actually deciding that we're going to do the right thing regardless. We're going to choose the right, wise, good thing regardless of how it works out. Missionary, a former missionary, uh, Nate Saint, um, said this. He said, obedience is not a momentary option. It is a die-cast decision made beforehand. Obedience is not a momentary option. It is a die-cast decision made beforehand. You know, I, I think sometimes that we drift from obedience to disobedience for any number of reasons. I think that we struggle with doing what is right, with doing the right thing, with, with making wise, healthy decisions. I think we struggle with this, at least in part, because we wait until we're in the moment to make the decision. We wait until we're in the midst of the circumstance, in the midst of the situation, 
before we begin to evaluate and run scenarios and think through the consequences. We wait until we're in the middle of something. And the deal is, when you and I find ourselves in the middle of a decision, when we find ourselves in the middle of struggling between right and wrong, between black and white, when we find ourselves in the middle of having to decide what is wise versus what is unwise, what is going to go well with me versus what is going to end up poorly for me, when we're in the middle of that situation, the reality is it becomes a billion times harder for us to make the right call. Obedience is not a momentary option for those of us that claim the name of Christ. For those of us that profess faith in Him as our leader and our forgiver. Rather, the Bible teaches that obedience is a die-cast decision we make beforehand. We decide beforehand. We get tired of waiting on God, so we take matters into our own hands because we wait till we get in the moment. We convince ourselves that we know what's best for us rather than what Jesus taught us in His Word. We really, 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 really want something badly, so we rationalize any number of series of unwise choices and decisions because this is what we want. We let our feelings win out over what we know to be true. In his book, Emotional Intelligence, uh, author Daniel Goleman argues that effectiveness in life is based uh, not so much on our cognitive intelligence, not so much on how smart we are, but it's based a whole lot more on something that he calls our emotional intelligence. And he talks about that, that sort of at the heart of emotional intelligence is the ability to delay gratification. At the heart of emotional intelligence is the ability to not live at the mercy of our impulses. And that's hard, isn't it? That is just hard stuff. Because there's a part of us that wants certain things and we want it now and we want it the way we want it and we, and we just, we don't like to wait, especially when it's waiting on God who so often is nebulous and vague and, and we can't get a handle on Him sometimes. There's a wonderful uh, experiment that was done years ago. Uh, it's just become known as the marshmallow test. They took a bunch of uh, four-year-old kids and they put them in a room with some marshmallows and they put a single marshmallow on the table and they said, the experimenter who was sort of conducting this, they said, hey, uh, I'm going to go out of the room. I've got to run an errand. Can you just sit tight for a few minutes? Uh, and by the way, you can eat this marshmallow while I'm gone if you want to, but if you'll wait till I get back, I'll give you two marshmallows. And so then they had like a hidden camera on the four-year-olds and they watched them. And oh my goodness, they did everything in their power not to eat the marshmallow. They, they, they would sit on their hands one, one little boy closed his eyes and just stared. An, another little boy licked the table as if the marshmallow flavor somehow would permeate the wood. And he wouldn't touch the marshmallow, but he would lick all around it. But you know what was true of most of the four-year-olds? Pretty soon, their desire for the marshmallow won out. And they grabbed it and stuffed it in their mouth. They were allowed to. The experimenter said, you can have the marshmallow. But if you'll wait, I'll give you two. And then the researchers uh, at the university that was doing this, uh, they concluded that the, the most amazing thing about this study was the impact this single character trait displayed at the age of four had on the lives of those 
who were part of the experiment when they became 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years old. Stanford University research team tracked these children for, for several decades and they concluded that those who were able to wait as four-year-olds grew up to be more socially competent, better able to cope with stress, and less likely to give up under pressure than those who could not wait. And the marshmallow grabbers, they grew up to be more stubborn, more indecisive, more easily upset by frustration, and more resentful about not getting enough. And when these four-year-olds uh, began to take their SAT tests, they, they, they discovered that those who had waited scored on average 210 points higher on the SAT. And this was back when the SAT score were lower than they are today because they've added other things into it and whatnot. And then they discovered after a couple of more decades that the marshmallow grabbers were still unable to delay gratification as adults. You know, I think we drift from obedience to disobedience. I think we drift from... from making some wise decisions to just making some stupid decisions for any number of reasons, but not being willing to wait on the Lord to work on our behalf, I think ranks as one of the top reasons. We fail to do the right thing, not so much because we don't know what the right thing is. We fail to do the right thing because deep down inside, we really want to do the wrong thing. We don't want to do the wrong thing and mess our lives up. We just want to do the wrong thing because we don't want to wait. We want what we want now and we want how we want it. Several years ago, Gallup polled Americans in a national study, and he asked, uh, the, the organization asked the question, what would you be willing to do for $10 million? Let me just ask you that. What would you be willing to do for $10 million? $10 million. What would you be willing to do for $10 million? What they discovered blew their categories because 25% of the Americans polled, this is a national poll, 25%, one in four. Look at four people sitting, three people sitting around you, one out of the four of you would abandon their family for $10 million. 25% would abandon their church for $10 million. You're thinking, I'd do that for a million. Come on, I mean, there are other churches. I mean, <laughs> 23% said they would become a prostitute for a week for $10 million. 16% said they'd give up their American citizenship. 16% said they'd leave their spouse for $10 million. 10% said they would withhold testimony in order to allow a murderer to go free. Get this one. 7% said they would murder a stranger if they wouldn't be found out. 7%. Look at the other six people sitting around you, and if you don't know one of them, whoo, get really nervous. <laughs> 3% said they would abandon their children. 3%. There is a great story in the Gospel of Luke. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 5 about Jesus and about the disciples and about this whole area of obedience. The story is really not about obedience, but it gives us a snapshot. It gives us a glimpse of what obedience looks like in the life of a follower of Jesus. Luke chapter 5, uh, we're just going to read the first uh, couple of verses here. The Bible says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And so Jesus got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon Peter, and asked Peter to put out a little from shore. And the Bible says, then Jesus sat down in the boat and he taught the people 
from the boat. Now the words and the grammar of the, of, of the passage here uh, that Luke uses lets us know that the crowd that had gathered to hear Jesus, they were more curious than they were committed. This was often the case when Jesus would teach. Uh, large numbers of people would come around Jesus because they really wanted to hear what he had to say. They were really curious. But most of them had no intentions of changing their life or lifestyles. Most of them had no intentions of stepping across the line of faith. Most of them had no intentions of doing what Jesus, the smartest man God who ever lived, said was the wise thing to do. Most of them had no intentions of doing that. They were just curious. They wanted to show. They wanted to hear Jesus. Oh, and they heard he did some cool miracles and stuff, so maybe he'll throw in one of those at the end of his talk. And so they just sort of gathered around. And most of the people that listened to him were just curious. They weren't really committed. And Luke uses language to that effect. But always when Jesus would teach the crowds, at some point, usually in the lesson, he would hone in on the committed. He would hone in on the disciples, sort of pull them apart and say, hey, we're going we're to take this a little bit further, if you will. And so look at verse 4. The Bible says, And when he had finished speaking, he then said to Simon Peter, I want you to put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. In other words, let's, let's all now leave the crowd, leave the curious, and let's go out into the middle of the Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, and let's let down the nets. And again, if the disciples had any brains whatsoever, they would have said, uh-oh, there's a test coming. We're near water, and Jesus is with us. That means test time, always. Now Simon has a choice to make. Jesus asked him to do something very simple. He said, let's put out into the deep water, and let's let the nets down. Would Peter do what Jesus told him to do or would he not? I mean, it sounds simple. I mean, it's a simple request. It's not even a spiritual request. Just a request. Hey, Peter, I'm done teaching. Let's go out into the middle of the lake where the water is deep and let's drop the nets. Peter had every reason not to obey Jesus. He had every reason not to do what Jesus is asking him to do. Because here's the deal. You've got the son of a carpenter telling the son of a fisherman who is now a fisherman who had fished all his life how to fish. Strike one. It's real easy to discount people that don't know what you do when they give you advice about what you do, isn't it? I mean, think of your occupation. I mean, someone wants to tell me how to fix my car, I'm all ears because I don't know much about it. But they want to tell me about something that I know a little bit about, it's real hard for me to accept that counsel. And so Peter really could have said, you know, Jesus, you stick to making the stools and the tables with your sawdust and your... Let me take care of the fishing. The other thing is, is that on the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, the best time to fish always has been this way, is at nighttime for numbers of reasons. And this was daytime. In fact, we're told that the disciples had fished all night. So this is daytime now. This is not the best time to fish. This is the worst time to fish. So Peter could have said, Jesus, you don't know anything about fishing. This is not the time to go. This would have been strike two. And then Peter is going to tell us in the next verse, we fished all night and we caught zip. Jesus, we know what we're doing. We are fishermen. And we fished all night long. We fished for eight hours. And we didn't catch a thing. Strike three. 
It would have been so easy, and who would have blamed him for Simon to rationalize that while Jesus might have some really smart thoughts about some spiritual things, he didn't know diddly squat about fishing. Therefore, I'm not going to do what you say do, Jesus, about fishing. I want you to notice Peter's response in verse 5. He answered, he said, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And Luke tells us when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that the boats began to sink. You know why the boats began to sink with so much fish? Because Peter did what Jesus said do. He didn't rationalize it. He didn't assume he knew better, though he probably thought he did. He didn't bellyache about the fact that he had done that, he had tried that, it didn't work, I'm going to try something different. No. The Bible says... Peter looks at Jesus and says, because you say so, I'll do what you ask. What if our response to the things that Jesus said to us was always, because you say so? What if when Jesus challenges us in an area of our life and he tugs at our heart and he prompts us, our response was not to run or to rationalize, but our response was, because you say so. What if when we're faced with a black and white choice about something, and we're really tempted to go with the bad choice, what if we were instead to say, you know, Jesus, I know I don't understand all this, and I know my heart is wanting me to go in this direction, but because you say so, I'll do what you say. As we wrap up this series, um, I just want to offer us a couple of thoughts about obedience. And you need to understand something this morning. I do not have this figured out. I do not stand here as someone who is obedient all the time and is teaching you about obedience because I have learned that obedience is easy or is always the thing I do or no. For every three steps I take forward, I take one or two back, and sometimes I take three or four back. I don't obey more times than you can imagine. And so I'm, 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 I'm talking to us this morning, not as someone who has obedience all figured out and, and always does the right thing. I'm talking to us as, just like you, someone trying to figure out how can I live with the attitude that says in every area of my life, in every circumstance, in every situation, when the smartest man in the world who happens to be God says, this is the way you should do it, and this is the way you shouldn't do it, this is the wise thing to do, and this is the stupid thing to do, when the wisest person who's ever lived says to me those words, I'm trying my best to figure out how I can respond in every situation. You know, Jesus, because you say so, I'll do it. 
So a couple of thoughts about obedience this morning. And the first is this. And this is a hard one for us to get. We need to understand that God will never honor disobedience in our lives. God will never honor. He will never bless. He will never put His hand of favor on us when we choose the unwise, stupid, dumb, wrong, bad things. He won't love us less. He won't turn His back on us and snub us. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying God will not bring His blessing and honor to bear on your life and my life when we choose to go against His word, against His counsel, against the wise thing to do, against what we know is right. Have you ever done something that you knew was wrong or done something that you knew was unwise or failed to do something that you knew you were supposed to do and then after you do that, because you know that you, you, you blew it, you sort of step back and you brace yourself for the lightning bolt? You don't know what form the lightning bolt's going to come in. It's probably not going to come in the form of a lightning bolt. It's going to come in something else, you know, in the form of a consequence or in the form of a circumstance. Or, you know, for me, whenever I do something bad, my car always breaks down. And it's just like, you know, that's God's lightning bolt to me, you know. Oh, bad call. My car won't start, you know. And so you, you sit there and you wait for it and you wait for it and you wait for it and it doesn't come. And you think, that's weird. I did what was wrong. And the lightning bolt didn't come. I made an unwise choice and God didn't zap me. I did something that I knew was stupid and everything's normal. You do that enough, you experience that enough, you live that scenario out enough, and guess what? We begin to correlate in our minds that what we do has no direct correlation to our experience. That, that when we disobey God, it has no direct correlation to God disciplining us. Or when we obey God, it has no direct correlation to God blessing and honoring us. If we live that experience out enough, we can easily deceive ourselves into thinking that what we do, how we think, what we say, who we're with, where we go, what we watch, what we involve ourselves in, how we steward life, has no direct ramification in the consequences that we live out. The Bible tells us not to cheat. Yet you fudge your income tax. And the IRS doesn't come after you. So you conclude after several years of this, this is working. God's honoring this. I have more money. I don't have to pay the government more tax. This is a good thing, even though we know that's not a good thing. Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you look at another woman and want her, you've already committed the equivalent of adultery in your heart. Yet you lust after people every day, and yet your marriage seems sort of healthy, and your spouse, what she or he doesn't know, won't hurt him or her, will it? And you conclude after lust, 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 that lust may not be as bad as Jesus thought it was. Wow, hey Jesus, this isn't too bad a deal. Proverbs 4 says, above all else. In other words, the number one priority, Solomon says, is guard your heart. Yet we get emotionally or physically attached to something or someone, and we know it's unwise, but everything seems to be working out okay. We sold our boat this week. And I, and, and I thought to myself, you're not attached to that boat. It's just a stupid thing that costs money. And as the guy drove off with my boat, I thought, I don't, 
That's my boat. And the last time I was on it, I didn't know it was going to be the last time I was on it. And I wished I'd known that because we would have stayed on it longer. And, and, and I concluded, you know, I was attached to that stupid thing a little bit more than I thought I was. That's indicative of something inside of me. The Bible says in Romans 12, don't try to get even. Leave revenge to God. Yet someone hurts you and you hold a grudge. And yet when you're with them, you act like everything's okay, but deep down... You are vengeful to them. And yet you don't get struck with the bolt of lightning. And so therefore you conclude, wow, Jesus must not have had all this together like I thought he did. Because here I am vengeful and resentful and bitter towards this person. And yet I can smile when he or she's around me and everything's okay. So therefore, what I do or what I don't do must not be tied to my consequences. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, don't fool yourselves. Bad friends will destroy you. And yet I've got dozens of people in my life, friends, deep friends, who don't share my values. They must not be rubbing off on me. I must be oblivious to their influence. And we conclude that what we do really doesn't issue forth in God blessing us or disciplining us. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Every time... We disobey God. Every time we choose the unwise course, every time we make a decision to sin, every time we think we sin by default, every time, no matter how big or small the issue is, no matter how big or small the area is, every time we decide to do the unwise thing rather than the wise thing, it changes us a little bit. Every single time. And sometimes the consequences aren't immediate. Sometimes we cross over two lanes of traffic and we don't get hit by the car. But at our own peril, should we conclude that it's okay to cross two lanes of traffic? Every time we walk opposite from what God says, it pushes us just a little farther away from our Heavenly Father and His best for us. Even if our circumstances look good, even if everything seems to be turning out great, even, e even if everything is better than it was the year before, even if all of that's true, do not mistake that for the blessing of God in your life. Do not mistake that for the hand of God in your life. Do not mistake that for God honoring you and what you've chosen to do or not do. Because the reality is God will never honor disobedience. He will never honor unwisdom. That's a new word, by the way. He will never honor that. He can't. It's contrary to his nature. He can't honor that. He can't bless that. He may not send discipline right away. He may not send a lightning bolt. He may allow you to live out your less than best case scenario for the rest of your life. But his hand of blessing will not be on that. And that's the first thing I'm learning these days about obedience and disobedience. A second thing is that God will never grow us past our last point of disobedience until we obey. God will never grow us past our last point of disobedience until we obey. This is a hard thing uh, for me uh, to contemplate. But the deal is, no matter how much I love Jesus, 
no matter how much I love what He teaches in His Word, no matter how sincere my motives and my intentions are, when I step away from God and what He is calling me to do, calling me to be, it will always, 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 always short-circuit His work in your life. He won't love you any less than He loved you before. Hopefully He will still reach out to you as you walk away from Him. But you have short-circuited His immediate work in your life. Because the very nature of disobedience is it moves us away from God, not towards God. This is, this is one of the biggest reasons why it is so crucial that we live wisely in every way possible. Remember the verse we looked at during week one, Ephesians chapter 5. Someone asked me the other day, they said, you sure quote Ephesians chapter 5 a lot. The reason I quote Ephesians chapter 5 a lot, because for me, this right here is going to, at the end of the day, determine whether or not we have lived wisely or unwisely. This is one of the most powerful verses in Scripture. Be very careful how you live, Paul says. Now, you say, what does it mean to live? You take everything that you've done up to this point in your life, everything, every thought you've had, every word you've spoken, every decision you've made, every choice you've made, every relationship you've been in, every way you've spent money, every way you've had a, a, you know, dealt with your spouse or your, or your kids, every, everything about you up to this point, that's what it means, live. Be careful how you live. These are desperate times. Make the most. Make every minute count. Make the most of every minute. Don't be stupid. Instead, find out what Jesus wants you to do. We talk a lot about making life decisions, big and small, seemingly insignificant as well as significant. By asking ourselves, what's the wise thing to do in light of my past experience? In light of the ways that I've lived in the past, in light of the ways I'm wired up, in light of my blind spots, in light of my propensity to go in this direction when God says to go this direction, in light of my past experience, what's the wise thing for me to do today? In light of my present circumstances, in light of where I find myself, in light of my situation, even if it's not the situation I want it to be, in light of where I am right now, what's the wise thing to do? And in light of my future hopes and dreams, in light of what I want to be true of me, in light of what I hope God will do in me, in light of of who I hope I become in Christ Jesus, what's the wise thing to do now, today, this moment, this instant? Because the deal is God, as much as He loves us, when we begin to take steps away from Him, He will take us and He will put us on a shelf until we're ready to obey. He will put us on a shelf and He will remove His hand of favor and blessing and honor until we are willing to say, Jesus, what you say is the smartest thing anyone could say and it is the best way to live and because you say so, I will obey you. Not because I understand it, not because I want to, not because I maybe even think it's the best thing to do, but because you say so, I will trust you. Third thing, final thing I'm learning these days is that we waste so much when we choose to live in unwise ways. We waste so much when we choose to live unwisely. Show of hands on this one. We're we're all family here. Show of hands on this one. How many of you did something stupid this week? 
By the way, my hand's up, just up to show you what it looks like to raise your hand. I'm not raising my hand. I just, you know. Yeah, we all did stupid things this week, didn't we? We all did dumb things. We all did things that we wish we could go and take back this week. We all said things. We all thought things. We all made decisions. We all made choices that were just stupid, that were unwise, that were dumb at best. And afterwards, today, as you think back on that, you think to yourself, how could I have been so dumb? How could I have been so blind? How could I have been so foolish? I should have known better. But for some reason, when we did the really stupid thing, when we made the really stupid decision, when we followed the really stupid path, we thought we could beat the odds. We thought we were bulletproof. We thought we were the exception to the rule. We thought that what Jesus said was true for everyone else except me in this case this week. But for some reason, I'm exempt from that. So in spite of what our common sense told us, in spite of what counsel told us, in spite of what the Word says, we really believed we could control the outcome of, and you fill in your blank, I fill in my blank. And so this week, in some area, we followed our heart. We followed our emotions. We trusted it. We did our own thing, and now we're sitting here wondering, what in the world was I thinking? Do you realize entire chapters of our lives start with a single decision, a single choice, a single moment in time. This is why the power of today is so huge. Do you realize we start down a path with one choice, with one decision? Just one. You pick a stock based on a bad tip. It changes everything. I was talking to a man this week. He's 59 years old. And I said, hey, you're about ready to retire. Are you excited? He said, I was about ready to retire last year. All of my savings and all of my retirement is gone, thanks to the economy. So I'm not retiring this year. Beyond his control, somewhat, but not all. Because then he proceeded to tell me, I did this with my money, and that was a little bit risky, and I did this with my money, and that was a little bit unwise, and now I'm not retiring. I'm going to work until I die. You choose a marriage partner against wise counsel. You secure a loan for a brand new car, and then you're strapped with incredible debt for five-plus years, and at the end of the five years, car is not worth a fraction of what you thought it would be worth. You make four $19.95 payments for something that's not even worth one $19.95 payment. You get involved with a business partner who doesn't share your values, who doesn't share your faith. You pursue a romantic relationship with someone other than your spouse. You view some pornography. You drink a little too much. You're becoming conceited and arrogant and prideful. All of these things begin with one decision, one choice, one step. The truth is nobody plans to mess up their life. I don't plan to mess up my life. You don't plan to mess up your life. It's just that so few of us plan not to. And we wait until we're in the moment to make the choice and it's a billion times harder to make the right choice when you're in the moment. 
Nobody plans to destroy their marriage. Nobody plans to raise irresponsible kids. Nobody plans to become addicted to alcohol. Nobody plans to become addicted to cigarettes or food or pornography or drugs. Nobody plans to get buried under a pile of credit card debt. Nobody plans to become self-centered and self-righteous and arrogant and prideful. Nobody plans to become vengeful or bitter or cynical or resentful or vindictive. We just fail to plan not to. We deceive ourselves. I got home last night, and um, Sean Catherine had a friend spending the night, and, and so I was sort of on kid duty, and um, at some point about 7 o'clock, I, I, I thought, okay, I need to go run, and so I went out, and I ran six miles, and just 90 degrees, and it's like, oh, this is stupid, 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 but when I got home, I was sitting, you know, shouting and everything, and then I sit down at the computer to work a little bit, and I thought, you know what would be really good right now? Ice cream. And so you know what I did? I said, hey, sweetheart, how would you and your friend like to go get some ice cream? Really? Yeah, I'm just like a good dad, and, you know, I just want to give you things that I didn't have as a kid. And <laughs> let's go get you and your friend some ice cream. And so we went to an ice cream place, and I'm thinking the whole time, you know, I, I shouldn't eat this ice cream. I know that's not a good thing to do. And I said, hey, uh, friend, what do you want? And she said, uh, I want a small blizzard with Oreos in it. And I thought, oh, wow. And I said, Sean, Cameron, what do you want? She, I want a small vanilla cone dipped in chocolate. And, and, she, and she said, Dad, what are you going to get? And I said, well, I'm going to get a small something. And so the little lady comes on the speaker thing, and, and I said, yeah, I need a small Oreo blizzard. And I need a small vanilla cone dipped in chocolate. And I need a Butterfinger blizzard, too. What size Butterfinger Blizzard do you want? I said, I want a big one. <laughs> she said, you want a large? I said, no. Is that the biggest you got? I said, I want a big Butterfinger. Give me the biggest Butterfinger Blizzard you can make and then double it. Because I love my kids. I can, I can take a bad decision and make it look like a good decision with one hand tied behind my back and my eyes closed. And you can too. We do it every day of the year. Do you realize every addiction, every bad decision, every unwise choice begins with some kind of rationalizing self-deception? This won't hurt anybody. I'll only do it once. I haven't had any for a week. I'm not doing anything wrong. There's no law against it. Nothing's going to happen. I can walk away anytime. I'll be careful. I can handle it. I can quit whenever I want to. People do it all the time. Nobody's going to find out. I won't get too involved. I won't become too attached. And we waste day after day after day. We waste our time. We waste our energy. We waste entire seasons of our lives. We waste opportunities. We waste so much potential. We waste being able to hear God speak into our lives the minute we make that one bad call. George Bernard Shaw in his play, St. Joan, uh, asks, uh, has one of the characters ask uh, Joan of Arc why the voice of God never speaks to him as she claims it spoke constantly to her. And this is what she says in the play. She says, the voice of God speaks to you all the time. You just don't listen. You just don't listen. I just don't listen.
Let me close with um, something that was written by Lewis Schmeads uh, decades ago. He, he writes in one of his books, he says, I bought a brand new date book yesterday. The kind I use every year. Spiral bound, black imitation leather covers wrapped around pages and pages of blank boxes. Every square has a number to tell me which day of the month I'm in at the moment. And every square in my date book is a frame for one episode of my life. And before I'm through with this book, I will fill the squares with classes I teach, with people with whom I ate lunch, with everlasting committee meetings that I sit through. And these are only the things I cannot afford to forget. I fill the squares too with things I do not write down to remember. Thousands of cups of coffee, some lovemaking, some praying, and I hope gestures of help to my neighbors. Whatever I do, it has to fit inside one of those squares on my date book. He writes, I live one square at a time. The four lines that make up the box are the walls of time that organize my life. Each box has an invisible door that leads to the next square. And as if by a silent stroke, the door opens and I am pulled through as if by a magnet, sucked into the next square in line. And there I will again fill the time frame that seals me. Fill it with my busyness just as I did the square before. But as I get older, the squares seem to be getting smaller. And one day, I will walk into a square that has no invisible door. There will be no mysterious opening and no walking into an adjoining square. One of those squares will be terminal. I do not know which square it will be. Today, this square for you and me is the most important square of all. How we live today, the choices we make today, the decisions we make today can make all the difference in the world to the rest of our lives. So I just want to challenge us and encourage us. Let's fill our squares with what matters most. Let's make those choices and those decisions based on what Jesus has taught us. And at the end of the day, let's be able to say to Him, because you say so, I'll obey you. Because you say so, I'll make the right call. Because you say so, I'll choose the wise path. Because you say so. If you would please stand with me and I'll close this.